I'm so glad I get to do this sermon for you today. I was afraid when the snow was coming down because the week following, we get full speed into the next leg of our journey through the biblical narrative into the life of Jesus. We've got a pretty ambitious schedule to get us to Easter, so had we not met today, this uh, may have waited for another time. Every piece of Scripture is given to us by God. All of it has a purpose, not just because the Holy Spirit gave it to us as he moved in those who wrote, but because each author is writing with a purpose in mind. And so we get today to look at three groups of characters that really cover the first two years of Jesus' life. And what we're going to learn as we look at these three groups of characters are the types of people that God seeks after. What this new community that Jesus came to create, he called it his church, his new community. We actually get a glimpse of the types of people out of which Jesus intends to build that new community. And we're going to see that these three groups represent these three types of people, sinners, saints, and seekers. The first group are what we would refer to lovingly but realistically as the sinners, and that's the shepherds. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Let's pick up at verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. We look at the shepherds of the time of Christ through the lens of this story. And therefore we see them as noble. But their nobility comes out of this event. <laughs> this event elevates the shepherds to a completely different status than the view of the day. You see, that God chose shepherds as the first to bear witness, to publicly tell of the coming of Jesus, is another one of those upside-down kingdom moments, that God chooses the foolish things of the world, the weak things, to confound the wise and the strong. This is one of those moments, because shepherds routinely were seen as the most untrustworthy of types in Jewish culture. There were common jokes in the culture that uh, if a shepherd was ever called into court, you, you, you just know to believe the other guy. 
And yet God chose those whose testimony, whose witness would not be trusted. He chose them to bear witness to the coming of his son. What makes them noble to us today is the call of God. The same thing that made Abraham noble when we studied him, the great father of faith. Same thing here. God reaches out to shepherds. You would describe the shepherd class in Israel as outsiders. It's interesting because they guarded, especially in Bethlehem, the flock that was specific to the temple worship. So they were guarding and overseeing and caring for the lambs that would go to the temple. And yet they themselves were excluded from the temple life. Their work itself left them ceremonially unclean and unworthy. Not just that, they were living in the hills of Bethlehem. Yeah, these are rugged men. These are, these are tough guys. You know, we think of shepherds. We think of Jesus, gentle shepherd. This was a rough, rough class, rough and tumble kind of guys that, that got into vices. Because of that, they were the outcasts of the Jewish people, and yet they were the ones that became the first witnesses. God comes to broken people, and he elevates them as he calls them. We move now into a less familiar piece of the story, and we're just going to continue at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God 
was upon him. All right, these two represent a different type of person out of which Jesus intended to build his new community. The first were the sinners, but let's not rule out the saints, the insiders of the Jewish people. And that's who Simeon and Anna are. It's worth noting that they are both very old. I think in one sense that continues the theme of God coming to those that are marginalized in some way by society. Those that the world would not naturally assume God would come to. Not the prestige, not those in the strength of their youth, not those in the heights of power, either spiritually or politically. These were two old people, but yet they were faithful. They are characterized as righteous and devout, true worshipers. Simeon, it says, had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we in the New Testament uh, are accustomed to that idea. In fact, we're too familiar with that idea, so we don't pay enough attention to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. But since Pentecost, which we'll get to sometime after Easter, since Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, you and I are distinct from the people of God in the day in which we're reading because we have the presence of God constantly. At this time, it is still like it had been in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came as an exception upon people and gifted them. And so it is noted as an exception that Simeon has the Holy Spirit upon him. And because of that, he's received a word of knowledge, a word of revelation, that he is going to live long enough to see the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, the one for whom Israel has been waiting for all of these centuries, longing for whom they've been praying And now, in his old age, he is moved by the Holy Spirit to come to the temple. And he comes at just the right time as Joseph and Mary and the Holy Spirit reveals to him, he's the one. And so Simeon comes, and we'll talk about his uh, words in just a few moments. Anna is different. Anna is acknowledged as a prophetess, which presumes again that she has a special presence of the Holy Spirit upon her. She has achieved some level of stature because she most likely lives in the temple. Herod's great temple had a lot of rooms, a lot of separate areas, and it's possible that Anna was actually allowed to live in the temple. The text seems to indicate that. She worshiped day and night. So Anna was likely a fixture, someone that was known by the people, a wise one who spoke for God. Anna according to this, says nothing except to rejoice over the child, to bless the child, to affirm the words of Simeon. They are both. In every way that we could describe as children of Israel in this time, they are the saints of these, what we might call uh, first responders to the coming of Jesus. Devoted and zealous, they see it and they bless it as it comes. Let's look at Simeon's prophecy. There are a few very important things that we can note here. Let's double back to verse 29. You might want to circle some of these things as we go through them, create a bit of a road map through this prophecy. The first thing I have uh, circled is simply sovereign Lord. Simeon begins 
by acknowledging that the God who is God has worked his sovereign plan since the beginning of time and in the fullness of that time, Simeon recognizes that even his being brought by the Holy Spirit to the temple at this moment in history was all a part of God working his sovereign plan. So it's not just a word of submission. It's an acknowledgement that God is working his will. He is not just the loving God who puts his plan at the disposal and at the mercy of our choices. He fulfills his plan. What he purposes to do, he does. Sovereign Lord. The next thing I circle is salvation. You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He knows exactly who this Christ is. It's worth going back and noting in verse 25 that it says, Simeon was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the comfort of Israel. That's what the prophets had said. Comfort my people. Console my people, says the Lord. Bring good news to them that their years of labor are over. The promise that a Christ would come. Simeon was longing for that. He was waiting for the comfort, the consolation, the making right, the bringing of shalom, wholeness to the people of God. And he understands that this one who has come has come to bring salvation. Next thing I circle that jumps out at me is that it is prepared for all people, all people. And he makes a point of developing that. This has been prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is one of those moments where you see Luke's distinctiveness in his writing because Luke himself is a Gentile. So he sees the coming of Christ uniquely because he recognizes that God promised that the seed of Abraham who would come would not only bless Abraham's seed, but would bless the world. He had experienced that blessing. And so he makes a point that Jesus didn't just come for the Jewish people. Jesus came to create a unique people of God. The writer of Hebrews develops this fully in hindsight. As he looks back now, as the church has developed since the time of Christ, and, and the gospel has come to the Gentiles, and, and he recognizes that what God was about through Abraham was to develop his people, some of whom shared Abraham's DNA. <laughs> they were the blood children of Abraham. But the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that what God was about was the spiritual life of Abraham, the righteousness that was accorded him by faith. As it was written, Abraham believed God and it was accorded to him as righteous. The New Testament authors look back and they get that. All who would believe God, believe in his promise, would find righteousness as Abraham did. We, all of us, are spiritual seeds of Abraham. You see? Luke makes sure that this prophecy by Simeon gets in the record so that we see from the very beginning this was the intent. Whatever it was Jesus was about to do was not just for the physical descendants of Abraham, but was actually for the spiritual descendants of Abraham, but would also include Gentiles. 
And that brings us to the third group in this story. We have the sinners, the outsiders. We have the saints, the insiders, all of them part of the nation of Israel. But then we have the seekers. They're not in the Gospel of Luke. They're in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 2. I asked Joel to maybe work up a version of We Three Kings today, but I guess he didn't get inspired by it. Didn't need it. Good worship. But we're going to read the story of the visit of the wise men. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We know that Herod's intent was not to worship, but to eliminate the competition. So God works and reveals that to these magi. But let's, let's back up and take a look at the magi. We have this thing in our family. It's sort of become a running joke, but um, we don't have the wise men near our manger scene. How many of you have wise men near your manger scene? It's okay. It's all right. Nobody's willing to admit that because you're sensing there's something wrong with that? It's okay. We'll let you get away with that just this year because you're going to know the truth right now. The wise men did not come to the manger. They came to the house. When you look at the telling of the story, Herod will eventually kill all boys under age two in and around Bethlehem. Because when he asked the wise men the time that the star appeared, it had been two years that they had been journeying. So it's likely that the Magi came to the home, not the manger, but the home in which Joseph and Mary and now a two-year-old Jesus lived. We also call them kings in our telling. Of course, they weren't kings. There's nothing here that indicates they were kings. They were called magi. We presume there were three kings, but the text doesn't say that either, does it? So, in effect, I would have had Joel singing heresy had he actually sung that song. You're actually a very wise young man. <laughs> we don't know that there were three. We presume there were three because there were three gifts. But for all we know, they could have gone in on them. <laughs> there could have been a whole crowd of magi. 
We, we really don't know. The word magi is the word from which we get the term magician. And in our day and age, we think of someone who's good at sleight of hand. But back then, a magician really meant one who had mastered the mystical arts. And this is somewhat of a dilemma for those of us that think religion and the gospel are all about living the right life, coming through the right path. Because the magi come from the completely wrong path to Jesus than what we would think. You see, they came from the east. Who else in our recent study going through the Old Testament story, what heroes of the Old Testament were referred to as magi? Do any of you remember? Daniel. Who else? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The characters of the exile who taught us how to live as believers in God in an unbelieving society. We learned so much from them. It's very possible that these were that group of magi from Persia, that they had some of the writings of Daniel, perhaps some writings that aren't part of biblical record. And here's the thing about the magi. They were both magicians and administrators. They were mystics and magistrates. They were astronomers They were the scientific class, but they were also astrologers because there was no separating out the science from the, the religious arts. So there was a paganism at the core of the Magi. Now, we know that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and certainly others were a part of that group while remaining faithful. They understood, learned, mastered all the understanding of those things, yet were faithful in their practice to God, never practiced those things in a way that dishonored God. But that's who these are. And that would make them, in our story, we have the shepherds, who were the outsiders in Israel. We have the saints, (laughs) who were the insiders. But just by virtue of their religious practices and their pedigree, these would be the outcasts. These would be the ones that Israel would completely dismiss and believe that God had also turned his face from them because of their paganism. But you see, God had put something in them. The Bible says, this is a great lesson here, the Bible says that of all people at all times, God has not left them without eternity in their hearts. What we see in this moment is a glimpse of how God is at work in the world at all times and at all places, revealing himself. Paul deals with that in Romans 1 when he talks about how God has revealed himself to all people. His divine nature, all that we need to know about him in order to respond and acknowledge him is seen in nature itself and in our hearts. God is at work. And what we see here is that even those that the religious center, you know, we develop our own biases even when we have the right religion, that the religious center would say they're the cast-offs. They're the ones that are already lost to us. Even then, God is reaching out. And God's going to build his new community even out of those that religion wants to cast aside and make outcasts. I love that thought. There's so much more we could look at here, but let me just quickly point out the three gifts themselves because they also tell us something about who Jesus is. 
And they're a little snapshot of the gospel. Gold was a gift for kings. Jesus was royalty. Incense was a tool for worship. Jesus was divine. He was deity. Myrrh is a spice for embalming. Very precious spice, but used to bury people. So within these three gifts, I I don't know how much the Magi understood, but I see the hand of God sovereignly working even through that so that we see again a snapshot of what's to come, that this baby that they were worshiping was royalty. He was David's heir, but he was also God's son, and there would be death. Let me double back now to Simeon. There's something Simeon says at the end of his prophecy. He turns to Mary and says, your son is going to divide people. Some are going to rise. Some are going to fall. Your son is going to be a watershed for culture. At that moment, how you judged a good Israelite was their association with the Levitical law and the temple. But what we're going to see as we go forward in the Gospels was that that was no indicator at all. And when people encounter Jesus, the nature of their heart and the nature of their real faith was revealed. Simeon sees that already. He says, he's going to divide. Think about Jesus when he said, I, I didn't come to bring peace in man's terms. I came to bring a sword. But then he also turns to Mary and says, and your heart is going to be pierced by a sword as well. Simeon is talking about the pain that Mary will experience because of the sword that will pierce her son. You see how it's all here so early in the Gospels? It's all there to be seen. Luke, Matthew are helping us see forward to the cross, see forward to the redemption, to salvation. It's a beautiful thing. And what we ultimately learn here is who Jesus came to save. He came to save outsiders, came to save insiders, came to save the outcasts. And here's what's unique. The saints are those that religion and the world see as deserving. The sinners are those that religion and the world see as undeserving. Seekers are those that religion and the world see as completely irrelevant and out of our reach. And what we see in these early stages are several important things. All of them needed a Savior. All of them needed a Savior. The saints, Simeon and Anna, needed salvation. You can be righteous religiously, and that doesn't save you. Blood, redemption, atonement. Doesn't really matter. Sinner, saint, seeker. We're all on common ground. Not only do we all need a Savior, but he came for all of us and offers all of us new life by faith and trust in him. It's also worth noting how God works to bring these three different groups together into a new community. Think about this. He uses angelic visitation. He uses the direct personal work of the Holy Spirit, moving and speaking. He uses dreams. He uses scripture from old and ancient prophecies. He uses nature and universe and movement of stars. And he even uses a king who wants to murder Jesus to help get the Magi where they needed to be. 
God doesn't waste anything when he works to bring us to himself. Father, thank you for that story. Thank you for helping us see that it was all there from the beginning. I think sometimes we have thought that the cross was a surprise. And now as we look back, we see that the plan was always the cross. That Jesus always came to be a savior. And that all of us are in need of that grace, but can equally find it simply by turning in faith to you. In Jesus' name, amen.